last week on the... <laughs> it's not the Sonic Truth Podcast. That was my best computer-enhanced Nate List. It's the best I got. No Nate List this week. He is on vacation. And normally, I would disparage the great Nate List. Great Nate. I take that opportunity at every turn, but not this time. Not this time. He's been working very hard on the Breakout Finder. He deserves some time off. Check it out. BreakoutFinder.com. This is his brainchild. He's proud of it. I am proud of him. Go there. Bookmark it. And this is just the beginning. And throughout the summer and into the fall, you will hear a lot more Sonic Truth podcast episodes than you have in previous seasons. Typically, once the calendar flips over to August, we go into hibernation. One show a month. Ha <laughs> ha! Not this time. Not this year. Nate Liss is recommitted to this. The Breakout Finder project has rekindled that passion. The passion for fantasy football. The, the passion for Dynasty. And the place to play Dynasty that stirs my passion most, Reality Sports Online. Reality Sports Online gives you the opportunity to start with all your favorite players because... The startup draft is not snake. It is auction. All leagues should be auctioned. We talked about this with Real Talk Raft last week. All leagues should be auctioned and Reality Sports Online delivers. And the beauty is with the startup auction, you're not just bidding on players. You're assigning a price to a player and a number of years to the contract. And if you extend the number of years out, the per year annual salary declines. So you could afford a player for less money by just committing to more years. And that's where playerprofiler.com enthusiasts have a real advantage on Reality Sports Online because you have a better sense of who is actually good and who is actually bad. Who's being propped up by circumstance and situation. Who, in a vacuum, is talented. We talked about this great talent evaluation dilemma with Chris Carson. No one that uses playerprofiler.com is signing Chris Carson to a four-year deal on Reality Sports Online. <laughs> you would never do that. You would let someone else sign up Chris Carson for the long term. Same guy that signed Thomas Rawls to a long-term contract and just had to eat it. You can set your league mates up to eat it on Reality Sports Online. There are so many levels of engagement and intrigue on a platform that leverages a multifaceted format. Because nowhere else offers a startup auction with a tiered contract structure. On Reality Sports Online, you can lock up Chris Godwin at value for four years at the maximum contract length and then sprinkle in some quality veterans on one-year deals. That's the move. And as with all auctions, you're always better off maximizing your number of studs. But because you're using playerprofiler.com, the other players on your team are not duds. And I would consider Chris Godwin a stud. Oh, yes. Oh, I would. On multiple occasions, this spring and this summer, Bruce Arians has come out publicly and said, Chris Godwin is never leaving the field. Never, ever leaving the field. The effusive praise heaped onto Chris Godwin is the stuff of number one receivers. It's what Bill O'Brien would say about DeAndre Hopkins. It's what Mike Tomlin would say about Juju Smith-Schuster if you were so inclined, but that's not who Mike Tomlin is. Mike Tomlin's better in the press conference than he is in the meeting room actually motivating the players. Mike Tomlin's better at motivating the reporters than he is the actual players. I cannot get enough Chris Godwin in all formats. I picked him in startups this year. I traded for him in other leagues. I'm all in. 
because I think Chris Godwin is a better football player than Mike Evans. If I were starting a franchise today, I would pick Chris Godwin not just because he's three years younger, and that's a big factor, but because I believe he has the potential to be to be more than just his team's alpha, to be one of the NFL's few elite uber producers, a wide receiver who can be efficient in the face of huge volume. We have a handful of these players every year. You know who they are. I've named a couple already. But Mike Evans is not in that class. Mike Evans has always been a tier two wide receiver, a compiler. He's strong on the outside. His target depth is second to none. But the air yards he delivers come without yards after the catch. The one-dimensionality and the inefficiency cap Mike Evans' ceiling. Chris Godwin is uncapped. And no one should be surprised when he outscores Mike Evans in fantasy football this year. You're just not allowed to be surprised when that happens. You're not allowed! You're not allowed! So launch a Dynasty League on Reality Sports Online right now. Use the promo code UNDERWORLD. Get 10% off your league. Get Chris Godwin and dominate your friends. That's my advice. Get Chris Godwin. Get Tyler Boyd. You don't pay for the Tier 1 receivers in auctions. You pay for Tier 1 running backs. That's been the mantra for multiple years. And it's a team-building philosophy that has served me and all of those in this audience very well. You want Chris Godwin. You want Tyler Boyd. These are young, precocious, ascending stars in this league. And now we hear A.J. Green has some combination of a high ankle sprain and ligament damage. So he's going to miss a couple weeks. I know they say six to eight. You do the math. Oh, in six weeks, he can be back by week one. He's 31 years old. 31-year-olds heal slower than 21-year-olds. I'm guessing A.J. Green returns week five. We're talking about a month without A.J. Green. And that's bad for Andy Dalton. That's bad for the Cincinnati Bengals. But it's not bad for Tyler Boyd. Because I keep hearing this is bad for Tyler Boyd. Tyler Boyd performs better when A.J. Green's on the field. And that's just not true. Like, I understand there are splits with and without A.J. Green last season. And those splits are as follows. 17.5 fantasy points per game with A.J. Green. 12.8 fantasy points per game without A.J. Green. I mean, those are extreme splits. But go deeper and do not fall into small sample traps. When you go deeper, you realize most of those games without A.J. Green were also with Jeff Driscoll. Jeff Driscoll, not as good as Andy Dalton. Now, more efficient than Andy Dalton on a per-attempt basis last season. But when Jeff Driscoll was on the field, the offensive coordinator was Hugh Jackson. The poster child for coaching and play calling and competence in the NFL. And what did they do when Andy Dalton went on the IR? Suppress the volume. It became a low volume, low efficiency, low scoring offense without Andy Dalton. It was not a prolific offense with Andy Dalton, but they throttled it all the way down. I mean, that offense was barely idling. That's why Tyler Boyd didn't produce last year. It wasn't because number one corners smothered him. Because that's the narrative. Oh, A.J. Green's occupying number one corners and not allowing defenses to double cover Tyler Boyd. Without Andy Dalton, without A.J. Green, Tyler Boyd struggled against alpha corners in the NFL last season. Well, that would have been to be expected. In your first season as a full-time starter, if you're thrust into a number one wide receiver role at age 23, 24, yeah, you're going to have some bad games. 
So you have a couple bad games with Andy Dalton as you adjust and acclimate to this new role. And then once you've acclimated, suddenly you look up and there's Jeff Driscoll under center and you're completely fucked. This is why principles take precedent over trends because most NFL trends are susceptible to small sample traps. And three games with Andy Dalton last year is as small as a sample gets. So am I going to ignore a core tenet of fantasy football, the law of the conservation of targets? Because some small sample within a small sample within a small sample surfaced some counterintuitive statistic? I mean, and it's fun. Hey, I did some research and I found this cool counterintuitive stat. Small sample or not, it's an interesting statistic. But it's just not actionable. What's actionable is the fact that you're pulling 7 to 10 targets per game off the board and putting them back in the pool, up for grabs for any receiver on the Bengals. And who is going to seize a disproportionate number of those vacated targets in the month of September? Tyler Boyd! So for that reason, Tyler Boyd will be elevated up the world-famous, in quotes, draft kits, extreme cheat sheet. The month of September, with that passing game to himself, got to boost Tyler Boyd 15 slots. Would I put him ahead of Chris Godwin? Of course not. <laughs> what, are you mad? But you got to put him right there with Christian Kirk. And I would challenge anyone waving the small sample infected split stat in front of your face, saying, oh, not so fast with Tyler Boyd. Say, okay, let me see your rankings Post AJ Green. Are you actually going to move Tyler Boyd down your rankings after AJ Green got injured? Because that's what you're implying. Because if you mock anyone moving Tyler Boyd up their rankings, then you need to be prepared to address the counterfactual, which would fly in the face of sound fantasy logic driven by a core tenet of the game the law of the conservation of targets. And we'll also be moving A.J. Green down, 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 down. Because, because not only will A.J. Green miss games, crucial games early in the season, this injury makes him more susceptible to future injuries as the season progresses. This injury will compound with his previous toe injury, setting up multiple forces to suppress his production, his age, his injury susceptibility, his quarterback. It's all bad. It's all pointing in the wrong direction. So check it out, fantasy-draftkit.com. And Tyler Boyd enthusiasts will be happy where we have him slotted in. But where A.J. Green falls on the cheat sheet will be a sobering moment for all fantasy gamers. Don't worry, I'll cheer you up. I have something that will cheer you up. Apex Fantasy. Those of you that want to add more leagues to your portfolio, this is where you play fantasy football for money. Apex is a skill-based fantasy format with industry-leading payouts which ensures the best fantasy players win big. And there's a lot of flexibility. Live drafts, email drafts, serpentine, and of course, you know Apex has auction drafts. And what I love about Apex is that they will put extra money in the prize pool to make sure all leagues fill. So when you sign up, you can have the confidence that league will fill. And of course, because this is a... Dynasty podcast that's not really a Dynasty podcast. My guest today is Warren Sharp. So precious little Dynasty League talk, but you want to hear from Warren Sharp. You want to hear what Warren Sharp has to say about play calling trends, positional value, 
strength of schedule, and the teams you should be focused on sourcing your fantasy players from. But beyond the juiced-up prize pools, the other reason I love Apex is the format. It mitigates randomness, so if you are confident in your ability, join a league on Apex. Free agency is blind bidding, so all free agent acquisitions are fair, and every roster gets two matchups per week, which makes it much more unlikely that bad matchup luck will prevent you from making the playoffs if you've drafted a great team. So go to apexfantasyleagues.com today and start drafting. And if you've been listening to me for the last six months, your team is going to be good. Now, listen to Warren Sharp and your team will be even better. Follow him at Sharp Football on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. It's Warren Sharp. A special event in the underworld. He just released the 2019 football preview. Get it on sharpfootballanalysis.com. Warren Sharp is here to talk all things NFL. Warren, talk to me. Matt, thanks for having me on. Uh, we do these uh, annually, it seems, the last couple of off-seasons, and always look forward to your great list of interesting and intriguing questions that I think uh, a lot of people around the uh, the radio channels are interested in as well, because you have got some great questions here that we're going to hit up. Yeah, this is you at maximum excitement. I know it, and I feel it. I feel it. I'm ready. But I want to go all the way back. I want to go back six months to the Super Bowl, because I'm still surprised <laughs> every time I think about the game. It comes up in conversation every other week or so. Something about the Super Bowl comes up, and I, I'm still perplexed about how the hell the Patriots beat the Rams, because I think we would both agree that the Rams, player by player, had the better personnel. But also we would agree the Patriots had the better game plan. But if you had to pick one thing that the Patriots did to win the Super Bowl, what would that be? Uh, well, the Patriots, I think it would probably be their pass-rushing ability to get after uh, Jared Goff, and the Rams' inability to make the appropriate adjustments. And that was the most frustrating aspect of it to me, because obviously the Patriots' offense didn't do hardly anything in this game. No one did anything! It was about the Patriots' defense versus the Rams' offense. That's how the Patriots won this game. And the problem was, you know, I think at times we give a lot of these coaching staffs, especially with two weeks to prepare for the Super Bowl, too much credit. We think that they've got this, uh, you know, well thought out research game plan that is just the most optimized thing out there. And the only reason why they wouldn't have success is if, you know, the other team just beats them. But we're doing the most optimal things possible. And that really is not the case. I mean, around the league, far too often, too many coaches are not overturning every stone to try to gain an advantage. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a lot of time researching this game and I had an idea of what the Rams needed to do. The Rams offensively could have won this game, uh, primarily if they used a little bit more 12 personnel. 
And I don't want to dive too far off like on a tangent. Your listeners know that's one running back, two tight ends. But the Rams were an 11-personnel team, the most 11 personnel the league has seen the last couple of years, just crazy amounts of 11 personnel. But guess what? Cooper Cup goes out. He's injured. Your 11 personnel no longer becomes quite as efficient or effective as it used to be. I know you don't love your second tight end. However, if you look back at a lot of your metrics, you're getting a lot more efficiency out of 12 personnel. Yeah, the Rams were more efficient when, when running plays at a 12 personnel, particularly after Cooper Cup went down. 11 personnel is great when Cooper Cup's in the game because that's optimizing the skill set of your players. But without Cooper Cup, when it's Josh Reynolds versus Gerald Everett, then you have to make decisions on a play-by-play basis, which is optimal. And in a lot of cases, it would have been better to have Higby and Everett on the field together. The offense would have been able to morph and adjust in real time, as opposed to just running the same plays they've been running habitually, and that played right into the Patriots' hand. The Patriots knew what the Rams wanted to do, the Rams knew what they wanted to do, and the Patriots knew what the Rams wanted to do, and they created a defensive scheme to stop it. But it was maddening to see them stick with 11 personnel for so long without Cooper Cup, just out of habit. They never took a step back and said, wait, is this really maximize our chances of winning? With this particular personnel grouping, not so much. No, and even if you look like throughout the course of that game, they used 11 personnel when they passed the football 36 times, 5.6 yards per attempt and a 29% success rate. When they used 12 personnel in the Super Bowl, 8.8 yards per attempt, that's an increase of over three yards per attempt, and a 60% success rate, that's a doubling of the success rate of 11 personnel. When they kept two tight ends to block, both tight ends in there in 12 personnel, they had a 16-yard completion on first down, a 9-yard completion on first down, and Jared Goff for the Patriots' 29-yard line had a wide-open touchdown pass that he held onto the ball for so long because he was having time in the pocket thanks to the extra blockers that he held onto the ball too long and allowed McCourty to get back and break that play up, but that was a touchdown waiting to happen. So... On three plays, they had three great passing looks when both tight ends stayed in to block, and yet they only used that three times out of the course of the entire game, were very inefficient in 11 personnel. Jared Goff was under tremendous pressure frequently, and yet they never decided to adjust and stick both tight ends in there to block more often. So that was the frustrating part about the pass rush and accounting for it. The other thing was play action. You know, the Rams could have used more play action to help slow down that pass rush. When they didn't use play action, they were being sacked more. The success rate was down at 33%. Their yards per attempt was down at 5.3. When they used play action in the Super Bowl, they were up at 7.2 yards per attempt, a 50% success rate, no sacks. So it, it really was frustrating watching it because they could have done things to help themselves succeed, and they chose not to. They chose a path that actually caused them to lose this game. Um, and, and that's the frustrating part, because even until the very end, this was a wide open game, certainly capable of, of the Rams uh, to win it. And they just blew it. It just makes sense that if you have a player like Gerald Everett, who is Josh Reynolds, athletic equal, plus 30 pounds, that he makes you more effective in the passing game and in the running game. It just makes sense that more teams should be leveraging 12 personnel, especially if you have Higby and Everett on the roster. But it seems the game plan was developed in preseason the year prior 
And Sean McVay, he had this version of take lock. He had play call lock. He had play call lock. And when the plays weren't working, he just started tilting. You see this happen to poker players. You see this happen to athletes. You see this happen to fantasy gamers where things aren't going right and you're frozen and you have no choice except just to do the thing you've been doing because going outside that comfort zone just feels so alien at the time. That's also a product of it being your first time in the Super Bowl. So often the narrative is told that experience matters and on the biggest stages. And usually that's a fallacy. But I think in that particular case, we saw the increased pressure exacerbate the stress that McVay was under and helped to prevent him from making a real-time adjustment. Now, when you talk about the personnel, do you see a positional usage trend or type of formation that can help propel a certain type of player this season, let's say satellite back usage, possession receivers, based on the positional usage trends or formation trends you're seeing, is there a particular type of player that you think is going to be in a position to succeed more this season? Teams are sort of wising up and throwing the football a little bit more often. The pass rate has increased, but they're doing it from a less creative standpoint of just putting out more 11 personnel on the field. So the rate of 11 is increased, but we're not seeing the rate of 12 or 21 increase very much. But yet the efficiencies gained by passing from those run sets where the defense has to keep an extra linebacker out there more frequently, where they have to be able to defend the run, where they're not entirely sure pre-snap if this team is going to run or pass. All of those things are edges for the offense. They're chips that the offense stacks in their pile of chips that gives them edges over the defense and the game is already tilted I mean we're already playing on an uneven playing field thanks to the rules that offense is more efficient it's getting more efficient by the season seemingly and those teams with quarterbacks that are playing efficiently and coached efficiently are having big edges over defenses and so when you can keep all those chips and the defense doesn't know what you're going to do pre-snap Uh, that's a big edge for you. But if you're pushing them back and you're becoming predictable with your personnel usage, uh, that definitely helps the defense. So that doesn't define which player archetype I think is going to be better. But what I will say is that I want more teams to utilize more 12 personnel. I want more teams to get that second tight end involved. What that would ultimately do um, is not that that second tight end would be catching a lot of passes. I think that would funnel more receptions to those top two wide receivers and I think in that scenario you know that number two wide receiver will be really interesting Um, I think a team and we're going to probably talk about him a little bit later but Chris Godwin as that number two wide receiver I think has a big upside potentially uh, this upcoming season but I agree with you from another perspective about the the satellite tight back Um, And this is something I've harped on for a while, so I won't dive into too much detail here. But when the two best coaches in the NFL, or two of arguably the best coaches in the NFL, and that's Bill Belichick and Sean Payton, at least from an offensive perspective, have two of probably the most surefire Hall of Fame first ballot quarterbacks out there, which is Tom Brady and Drew Brees. And yet both teams with great coaches, creative coaches, great Hall of Fame quarterbacks, choose to throw the football to their running backs at the league's highest rate on first and second down when they could design plays and quarterbacks have arms and intelligence to throw the ball wherever they want to on those first couple of downs. Yet they channel the largest rate of passes to the running backs. That should turn on a light in the rest of the team's heads. That should open up 
a window to say, hey, maybe we should be focusing on what the Patriots and the Saints offenses are doing on early downs and how often they're throwing the football to their running backs. And I naturally think that more teams need to pick up that torch and go down that path of throwing the football more to running backs on early downs. But there's a big difference between what I think they should do based on an efficiency that it adds to the team uh, as opposed to, you know, funnel those carries to the running backs as receptions to the running back, what I think they should do versus what they will do. And so it's hard for me to point to a singular team or player that I think will get more receptions as a running back this year, but more teams around the league need to do that. And more teams need to use a little bit more uh, heavier personnel to pass the football. Is Freddie Kitchens an above average offensive mind? In my opinion, yes. Even though we've got a very limited sample size, he modified so many different things with the Cleveland Browns offense last year, including putting Baker under center more often, um, including using different personnel groupings and and dropping their rate of 11 personnel from 79% all the way down to 68%, Mm -hmm. increasing the usage of 12 and 13 personnel. Um, Using 12 personnel, not just to take deep shots, which is what Todd Haley was doing, but actually having a productive passing game out of 12 personnel. There were a lot of small tweaks that Freddie Kitchens did in a very short span of time that were much different than the way that Todd Haley was calling this offense that show to me that he is very quick to pick up on things. He notices things. I mean, keep in mind, Freddie Kitchens was not the guy getting these analytics reports that were being prescribed based on what he wondered the first few weeks of the season so that he could have the best opportunity to make adjustments later in the year when he took over. You know, the offense was doing what it was doing and Freddie Kitchens was, you know, a position coach. And all of a sudden he comes in and makes all these adjustments. I'm excited to see what he's going to do when he has the ability to have free reign from, you know, the start of training camp all the way through the end of the regular season to make changes, modifications, and optimize this offense over the course of the year. Adding Demetrius Harris, a big-bodied tight end with athleticism and strength of the catch point, was a head-scratcher last season because the Browns already have David Njoku, but not if they intend to utilize 12 personnel more, not if they intend to throw the ball to the running back out of the backfield. And who do they refuse to trade? Duke Johnson. And we assume that they'll be throwing the ball at a high rate. And as you said, the number two receiver benefits most from that trend. That number two receiver is Jarvis Landry. And if you go down the list of the offensive skill position players on the Browns that are the best value in fantasy football, it's Duke Johnson, it's Jarvis Landry, it's Demetrius Harris. Those are the guys that are available in the mid to late rounds or on the waiver wire. And Landry and Duke Johnson are bounce back candidates. And Demetrius Harris... He will essentially be like the Dallas Goddard of the AFC because I think the Philadelphia Eagles are the best equipped to leverage 12 personnel in the NFC because they have Ertz and Goddard, and the Browns have a version of that in Njoku and Demetrius Harris. So Demetrius Harris is going to score a bunch of touchdowns this year, just like Dallas Goddard. Now, in all your research, do you feel like there's a particular team-level detail there's a particular detail about a team that just shocked you, that you weren't ready for. You've been following football all season. But then when you actually sat down with the data, what was the one data point that jumped out at you and, and blew your hair back? Well, it's always challenging to 
you know, isolate just the one. But one that certainly was surprising to me uh, was the fact that despite Patrick Mahomes leading the league in deep passing completions and despite him leading the league in deep passing yardage, he only ranked 28th of 35th. Uh, 35 quarterbacks in percentage of total passing yards that came through the air. What that means is that he was having a ton of yards after the catch, Mm -hmm. despite throwing very deep down the field, and he was having a ton of success on underneath stuff. And that really shouldn't shock us from the perspective that we know Andy Reid is a genius with that. And the way that he designs those running back passes on early downs and the way that he designs routes um, and concepts to have high leverage yak after that reception is not a shock. I mean, he's probably the best in the NFL at making those types of uh, play designs. But it uh, definitely just goes to show you that, you know, Andy Reid is one of those coaches that gets it because he makes life easy on the quarterback. He doesn't try to put the quarterback in difficult situations frequently. He doesn't try to put them in third and long situations where they have to perform. He intentionally tries to make their life easier, knowing that the quarterback and the passing offense's influence over the result of a game is so massive that he does everything in his power to try to make that as easy and efficient as possible. So I just wish more coaches would study how Andy Reid makes life easy on the quarterback. Now, It's not shocking that two guys that came from his tree have done the same thing in the respective cities where their head coaches and call calling plays as he did. And those would be Frank Reich in Indianapolis, right? And in Chicago with Matt Nagy, both of those guys made life very easy on their quarterbacks this past year. If you look at what Andrew Luck was doing this time last year. He wasn't even throwing the football. He hadn't thrown the football in over 500 days. Everybody couldn't stop talking about it. And yet he comes out with a lot of short passes on early downs. Instead of protecting that shoulder, he's throwing the ball a lot on early downs to make life easy, prevent him from being in very many third and long situations. And then, of course, in Chicago, we know the limitations of Mitch Trubisky. But the way that Nagy was designing those routes and the concepts to make the first read very easy to get a high percentage, uh, not have to force a lot of deep completions for this offense to be productive. Uh, he did a great job kind of leveraging the downsides of, of Mitch Trubisky and maximizing the upsides. And so those guys are both direct, uh, directly got that from Andy Reid. And the Chiefs players make life easy for Patrick Mahomes as well. When you have Tyree Kill stretching the field, you create more room underneath four yards after the catch. And when your tight end is Travis Kelsey, who leads all tight ends the last five years in yards after the catch per target, regardless of who the quarterback is, then your receivers are going to put up great yak numbers. And it is surprising when you go to the air yards per attempt, Patrick Mahomes outside the top 10 in air yards per attempt, outside the top 10 in deep ball completion percentage, but he makes up for it with copious deep ball attempts and incredible yak per target from his receivers. Now, is there a single player that jumped out at you with flashing lights that you think fantasy gamers need to be targeting in drafts? I've got three guys on this list. Oh, three Uh, guys. Give us three guys. 
one at each position. Now, I know this kind of doubles with like uh, a very, very, very bold prediction, which is your last one. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Oh, you're giving away the show sheet. I don't want to go too deep into uh, <laughs> sharing all these guys. So um, I guess I'll save, the, I'll save the running back for later. Okay, let's hit a uh, guy I already touched on before, and then we'll hit a quarterback. Um, I think Chris Godwin is obviously set up for great, productivity and i think he's a guy that would really be able to come on late in the season and be productive and why do i say that i say that because over the final weeks of the fantasy season that runs through week 16 over the final six weeks the bucks play the number two toughest schedule of run defenses but the number five easiest schedule of pass defenses they also have terrible defense themselves bruce aarons wants to be balanced but when he has a lot of confidence in his ability to dial up pass plays, he has a lot of confidence. I mean, he said that Godwin is never going to leave the field. And when we know that even if he uses those two wide receiver sets of like 12 personnel, because I got some tight ends there, that Godwin is a really good target on those types of passes, or you move him into slot in 11, you don't have Adam Humphreys there anymore. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about Godwin way more than I need to get into detail here. You're just confirming what we've suspected, that Chris Godwin is the screaming breakout candidate of the year. I love the fact that he's going to be targeted often. I love the fact that he's in a situation where they're going to be able to have success throwing the football uh, because they're going to be playing a very easy overall schedule of pass defenses. And I love the fact that, especially you know from fantasy uh, perspective, I'm not the most genius guy at, you know, figuring out when you want breakout players in terms of, uh, you know, later in the season or earlier in the season. But he's got the number one overall easiest schedule of pass defenses. And late in the year, they play one of the hardest team schedules of defenses to run on, easiest to pass on. It make, it's, a, it's a no-brainer that, especially when they do get down to the red zone and they're not having success running the ball, that he's going to probably get a very high rate of red zone targets as well. What about running back? Well, the running back that I think um, has a chance to surprise some people this year um, and, and maybe do some great things that not a lot of people are probably counting on, and especially late in the year because there's a little stretch of his schedule in the middle that is relatively difficult, um, is Miles Sanders of the yeah. Philadelphia Eagles. Oh. Yeah! No, I didn't know you were going to say this. I didn't know. Tell the audience, Warren, that I didn't know what your answer was going to be. Oh, yeah, yeah, no idea. I had no idea. This is not staged. You're a man of integrity. I had no idea you were going to say Miles Sanders. Well, not only that, I don't know that you even like him, so it sounds like you do. I am a big fan. So the reasons why I like Miles Sanders, uh, it's, it's, it's a couple reasons. Number one, um, the Philadelphia Eagles play a top 10 easiest schedule of opposing round defenses. They also play a top, I got them ranked sixth, easiest schedule of overall defenses. They're a very good team, which means they should be in very good positive game scripts. We also know that a lot of people might be scared of the number of running backs in this running back stable that they've got. But I think the reason they've got such a big stable of running backs and they never really had like that guy last season either and they were rotating through guys is because none of them were very good. They didn't have a lot of success or efficiency with any one of those guys. But I think if one of the guys gets in there and has a chance to stick, 
they're going to let this guy be efficient. The Eagles are a team that we know employs analytics and focuses on things that are going to help their team win. And if there is a back who's being productive and efficient, I guarantee you that they're not just going to go RBBC for the hell of going RBBC and right. spread it out to guys that are less efficient. Running back by committee is not a religion. It's deployed as a necessity. And if you have Miles Sanders, you don't need it. And so he's going to have opportunities in the red zone. He's going to have opportunities for overall touches. And last but not least, if you look at what this team has after the bye, okay, after the bye, they play all, every single one of the teams that they will face, except for the Dallas Cowboys ranked below average in run defense last season. And if you run down the list, they have one of the easiest schedules in the league to close the season at the end of the year. So yeah. especially weeks 11 through 15, um, they've got the second easiest schedule of run defenses from last season. So uh, I think that this is a great opportunity to kind of buy on a guy that other people are worried about touches or his injury this offseason or a variety of other factors. Uh, I think I think it's a great chance to buy low on this guy. Dynamic all-purpose talent, top run-blocking offensive unit, positive game script, don't need to say more. I also would have been happy if it had said Dalvin Cook. Do you think Dalvin Cook's poised for a resurgence this season? I do, primarily for one of the reasons I think he's definitely, definitely poised is because of the new offensive coordinator. Um, you, you don't have Latavius Murray there anymore, of course. Well, that's a big deal. No Latavius Murray is a big deal. That's a massive deal. You're right. And they brought in Kevin Stefanski, who was their quarterback's coach from the prior year. Now, one of the most mind-boggling things to me of any of the coaching hires last year and then the coaching firings was what went on with the Minnesota Vikings when Mike Zimmer sat down with John DeFilippo in the offseason and decided to hire this guy. Did he not know that the Philadelphia Eagles were one of the most pass-heavy teams in the NFL last season? Did he not know that the roots that he got were from that school of passing efficiently? It's the way to win football games. Pass efficiency is more efficient than uh, pass efficiency leads more towards wins than does run efficiency. Um, I don't know how that conversation went, but the bottom line is that John Filippo was passing the football a lot, and Mike Zimmer hated it. And Mike Zimmer decided <laughs> to get rid of him and go with this more run-heavy coordinator the last few weeks of the season. And if you read the book, 2019 Football Preview, you'll see that the rushing really didn't help all that much. Like going with a more run-heavy approach did not suddenly make the Vikings offense come to life and be much better, but that's irrelevant for what we're trying to figure out right now this offseason as to who is going to get the volume and the opportunity in 2019. And there's no doubt that the reason why Kevin Stefanski even got his job is because Mike Zimmer wants to run the football more, and it's because that's Kevin right. Stefanski saw a guy who passed it often get kicked out of town and that's going to resonate with what he decides to call in terms of his plays this upcoming year. So it does not shock me. You get rid of Latavius Murray. You add a very run-focused offense coordinator that we're going to see a great opportunity for Dalvin Cook. The listeners of the show were wondering, why did I suddenly start waving the flag for Dalvin Cook so vigorously? And the timing aligns with when I helped to edit your book, and particularly the Viking section was one of my focuses. After reading your book, Everything fell into place. All the reasons to tout Dalvin Cook, that you'd want Dalvin Cook in the early second round of fantasy drafts, and also that you'd want 
to hoard as many skill position players in the NFC South in general. You've already touched on all the shootouts we're destined to see in the NFC South. Christian McCaffrey's being utilized out of the backfield at a record rate for a satellite back plus. Bruce Arians has arrived to take that offense to the next level. Drew Brees is in the conference, and we haven't even talked about the Falcons. I think the Falcons could be the chiefs of the NFC in that they focused exclusively on the offensive line in the early rounds of the draft, telling me they're not trying to run the ball, they're trying to protect Matt Ryan. They're trying to protect Matt Ryan so he can throw outside and deep even more. And if they get creative throwing the ball and choose to throw even more than did last year, so you have increased pass volume with better protection to allow the quarterback to throw to the outside, and it's hard to find a better wide receiver tandem than Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. Don't forget Austin Hooper ascending. And they have Ito Smith as a satellite back. And then you think about all the shootouts they're going to end up in. Just the passing yards you're going to see in Atlanta feels like it's out in the extremes. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the most underrated uh, stories last offseason was how Matt Ryan, you know, he signed this five-year, $150 million extension and put up numbers that were nearly identical to his 2016 MVP season, but nobody's talking about it. I mean, look at his total yardage, 49-24 versus 49-44, right? 20 yards different over the course of the entire season. Guy's a metronome. Touchdown to interception ratio, 35 to 7 versus 38 to 7. I mean, his completion rate, 69.4 versus 69.9. He virtually put up identical numbers to the year that he won MVP, but because the team did not have a good season and won only seven games, of course, he wasn't in MVP discussion. Do you know why that was so impressive, Warren? Because the protection rate deteriorated last season. The protection rate went from 89.6 to 79.5. And all you had to do was watch Falcons games to see Matt Ryan taking sacks and hurried on an inordinate number of plays. So for him to maintain an identical stat line from one season to the next with his protection disintegrating around him was incredibly impressive. No, I agree. And I think, you know, this defense, they're still not going to be great. They ranked 31st in the league last season in defensive efficiency. Um, And so they're going to need to put up points offensively. And you're right. When you look at this division, it's a laser show. It's going to be a laser show in the NFC South laser show. It's insane. If you look just around the division, I've got three of the top five easiest schedules coming from this division um, and if you look at, uh, you know, from a passing efficiency offense perspective, I've got the Bucks, the Saints, and the Falcons all right there as the top six easiest schedule of pass defenses that they're going to face uh, this entire year. So there's no doubt about it to me that I think you're absolutely right, that we're going to see some fireworks. And we typically see good fireworks down in the NFC South. But this year, especially <laughs> with adding Bruce Arians in there and getting rid of Uh, Steve Sarkeesian, who struggled in the red zone and bringing back Dirk Cutter, I think we could have a little bit more explosiveness around the entire division this year. I think the offenses will improve the most in the NFC West, though. Because the NFC South was already a prolific division, I think the biggest improvement is going to come in the NFC West, particularly because you have have the return of Jimmy Garoppolo, plus you have the arrival of Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. With Cliff Kingsbury arriving in Arizona, what aspect of his philosophy do you think is going to be 
the most noticeable on Sundays? I think it's going to be their usage of the, the run game, the spacing that they put out there on the field. I mean, if you look at what they were doing last season uh, with the run game and how often they were just running the ball right up the center over and over and over again and not having any efficiency but continuing to do that. I know there's a definition of insanity out there. Uh, that was just ridiculous. And we're going to see spacing and creativity and what the spacing and getting a lot of players out there and routes will allow Kyler Murray to do is then be creative on the ground as needed, um, which you know, one of the most effective means of moving the football, whether it's in short yardage or standard down distances, is a mobile quarterback. We've seen it time and time again. Young quarterbacks come into the league, have efficiency moving the football on the ground with their wheels, especially on pass plays where the first read isn't there and they see a big lane. We saw it with Josh Allen last year. We've seen it in years past with Russell Wilson and Colin Kaepernick and lots of other guys around that time frame. And Kyler Murray is just going to be the next in line who's going to have a lot of success with the way that the offense is designed to have that rushing upside, which, again, is very difficult to project. It's very difficult to uh, figure out, and it's very difficult to defend. And the easiest time for quarterbacks to get on their bike and try to run the football is when they're young and less experienced and don't get through all their reads every single time and they feel like their body is indestructible, and that's when these guys are going to be at their best. You know, look at Russell Wilson now. He's much less prone to run down the field with open lanes. He's a little bit slower, and, you know, so that's changed a little bit for his game. So definitely Kyler Murray is is going to add a lot of things and creativity towards this offense, and, I mean, I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see the efficiency that they can bring with, with uh, Cliff Kingsbury's new scheme. Speaking of rushing production, how the hell did Ezekiel Elliott score less than 10 touchdowns last season? Like, that's a riddle that that happened. It is, absolutely. I mean, with the amount of rushing attempts and the desire to run the football and be less pass-heavy. He had 51 red zone touches. Think about that. And he played the 13th difficult schedule of run defenses. They play an easier schedule of run defenses this upcoming season. But the one thing that I still think Dallas needs to do, and it will remain to be seen uh, whether or not Kellen Moore decides to go this route, Dak needs to run the football more in the red zone. I just talked about the rushing efficiency of quarterbacks. Dak needs to run the football more often in the red zone. It's very efficient. It's very productive. But to date, like they haven't really taken advantage of that skill set enough, in my opinion, that Dak brings to the table. That being said, you're absolutely right. If you want to look at like a candidate for regression and positive upside based Ooh. on the number of touches he had, it's going to be harder to find a better candidate than Ezekiel Elliott. And he's certainly still, uh, you know, justifiably, he's worried that the team's going to run him a lot. And uh, guess what? A lot of runs means a lot of touchdowns means some good stats, which then hopefully could get you paid in the future. So, uh, you know, it, it might come back to benefit him a little bit. But you're certainly right. I think he could have some upside in his touchdown regression this year. Nine touchdowns is the most baffling number from 2018 on playerprofiler.com because Ezekiel Elliott, again, 51 red zone touches, 23 breakaway runs, nine touchdowns. You'll never see that again. So we're going to do some micro rapid fire segments. Couple questions of rapid fire, back to regular questions. 
So two questions, rapid fire. Who was the most fraudulent team last season? Team that we think of as good, but actually wasn't good at all. The Tennessee Titans, in my opinion. Which team should fantasy gamers avoid like they're a disease, like gonorrhea? I mean, which team has an STD and you should never draft anyone on that team? Uh, can we go back to the Tennessee Titans? Okay, yeah. If you think the Tennessee Titans should be avoided at all costs. So Derrick Henry, no chance he leads the league in rushing? No, I, I don't want to say no chance, right? Every, there's a chance with everything. The one thing to realize with the Tennessee Titans is they face the number two most difficult schedule of run defenses this year. I don't have a lot of confidence in what Marcus Mariota is. I thought we were going to get a creative offense when Matt LaFleur came in and took over play calling duties from two years of exotic smash mouth. But what we ended up seeing is a higher rushing rate and less success in rushing than in either season of the exotic smash mouth. Mm. So there was a reason why they were running the football a lot and possibly why, you know, Matt LaFleur is going to go to Green Bay and let Aaron Rodgers pass the ball more. And that is not just because Marcus Mariota dinged up his nerve. I think that there could be some underlying issues with the confidence about Marcus Mariota as a quarterback. I certainly have questions. I think it's uh, certainly appropriate for any analyst to have questions about what Marcus Mariota is going to be in this league because we all hope that he's going to be great, but it certainly doesn't look like he's on the right trajectory as of right now. Um, They do have some players returning from injury. I do love uh, what Derrick Henry brings. It's like you don't going to get guys that are going to get a higher rate of their team's carries. I think uh, the experiment last season with Deion Lewis did not work out very well, and they're certainly looking to switch more to Marcus Mariota, and they've got a good defense. So he's going to get touches. I mean, he would be the one guy that I would look for in that offense. Okay, Fuse. You wouldn't mind having Derrick Henry. I wouldn't mind having Derrick Henry simply because I think that run rate's high and I don't have a lot of faith uh, in Marcus Mariota. And the one thing that concerns me, you know, you bring on a new offensive coordinator and what Arthur Smith has said is we just want to do the same types of things as we did last year because Marcus Mariota's had too much turnover at the offensive coordinator position that I want to try to keep his keep things as even keel as possible from what we were doing last year and from an analyst perspective i didn't like what they were doing last year i didn't like the efficiency of what they were doing last year so i don't love that playing out into this year uh i could be overreaching with my analysis of his quote um and i could also be wrong about the fact that maybe their defense is good and so their offense is going to have a lot more opportunities in either case it works in the favor of Derrick Henry, and I still don't have a lot of confidence in the receiving options that that team will bring in 2019. Yeah, Corey Davis's ADP continues to fall for good reason. Tyreek Hill's ADP is skyrocketing because he's not going to be suspended. Tyreek Hill and Alvin Kamara are the model breakers at their positions, delivering efficiency way beyond expectation each and every season. Is there another model breaker out there besides Tyree Kill and Alvin Kamara? Tariq Cohen up in Chicago. Ooh, I like this one. I think he's got just so much upside. He's a very different type of player, but it's not just him as a player. It's the system that he's in and the system that wants to utilize. And, and, and Matt Nagy, we already talked about how creative he is. We know Mitch Trubisky has certain limitations. Uh, this was a team last season that offensively was extremely healthy. You know, one of the, the one of the top five or six healthiest offenses in the league. Um, healthy wide receivers. There's a chance maybe the wide receivers aren't quite as healthy in 2019. 
and so I think just the ways that he's utilized in the receiving game and the run game, you know, if you look at, you know, his, his per play uh, yardage and, and some of his uh, metrics, you know, in terms of catching the football, averaging eight yards per attempt, like we think that those types of things will definitely regress. But I think in the near term, as long as he's in Matt Nagy's offense and Mitch Trubisky is a quarterback, I think he's going to be similarly productive. Antonio Brown did regress last season. Now, the fantasy points stayed steady, 21.6 per game, because he scored 15 touchdowns. But you look at the underlying efficiency, 7.7 yards per target, number 60 in the NFL, and the average target depth, 11.9, number 50 in the league. So he was not getting downfield, he was not separating, and he was not delivering per target efficiency in spite of these touchdowns. So now... Antonio Brown gets shipped to Oakland. Can he return to fantasy WR1 status in Oakland? Or is the downgrade from Roethlisberger to Derek Carr a death blow? I don't know that it's a death blow. I do think Ben Roethlisberger is underrated in NFL circles. Just the, the way that he plays the game, um, it's not pretty. But he's I, I like him as a, as a quarterback. Um, and I don't, I don't like Derek Carr for similar reasons. Uh, but... I don't know that it is a death blow. Um, look, we know that John Gruden is running the ship out there more or less, and he really wanted to bring this player on board. And I guarantee you, if Antonio Brown doesn't play well or doesn't work out in the system out there, that John Gruden is going to be taking a ton of heat. And so that's the edge that coaches who are the offense coordinator and play caller have, is that they can basically slant whatever they want to do whatever they want on their side of the ball to make themselves look as good as possible. So, you know, they will, they can easily jeopardize defensively uh, things that are going to happen based on the way Gruden calls the offense in order to try to maximize the abilities uh, that Antonio Brown brings to the table. So um, you also have to think about like, some of the defenses that are out there um, in the division that he's in, obviously, the Chargers, a very good defense, but there are problems with some of the other defenses in the secondaries, and and, and I think Antonio Brown could have some uh, success there. So I, I'm kind of on the fence on him. I have no idea from a fantasy perspective if he's a value or he's... He's not a value. I will tell you that uh, I believe that Gruden's going to do everything possible to get him the ball frequently, but I personally... Um, don't love Derek Carr, and I think that that's going to play a role in Antonio Brown's production. Wide receivers that change teams generally disappoint. Not so much with the quarterback that loses the high-profile wide receiver. Typically, the quarterback just keeps on humming along. How much do you think the Steelers will miss Antonio Brown? Because they have Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin signed to an extension. Do we trust Mike Tomlin the way we trust John Gruden? Well, there's not many coaches out there who have been blessed with as much talent as Mike Tomlin has had over the last, you know, six, seven, eight years to do absolutely nothing with that talent. <laughs> Dagger! I know some people think that, you know, winning double digit games and making the playoffs is doing something, but in reality, <laughs> the goals in Pittsburgh are to win a Super Bowl, and they are three and six in the pl- in the playoffs. Since winning the AFC back in 2010, almost a decade ago, and they've lost to Tim Tebow in the Broncos. They lost to Joe Flacco. They lost to Blake Bortles. They lost to Peyton Manning at 39 years old. Those are the guys that they lost to in the playoffs. The only guys that they were able to beat, Matt 
Moore of the Dolphins, A.J. McCarron when he was filling in on the Cincinnati Bengals, and Alex Smith. And the only way they beat Alex Smith is I think they kicked six field goals in that game. So uh, 18 to 15 final score. Uh, Mike Tomlin is a defensive coach. That's his background. Yet look around the league at some of the big games that the Steelers have played against a variety of opponents and study their tactics defensively. It'll blow your mind the idiotic things at times that this team decides to do and never makes adjustments during the course of the game. Single covering Gronk when he splits out wide? Sometimes not even covering Gronk. Uh, Using linebackers to cover one of the best wide receivers in the NFL, especially when he's lining up in the slot, which cost them the game. Literally, that decision alone cost them the game against the Chargers last year and Keenan Allen. Uh, and the other thing that Mike Tomlin like is really lauded as is a player's coach. Yet, there's frequent player locker room issues um, that extend beyond even just Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell. So, you know, he's, he's, he's a player's coach, but his players are creating issues for him. He's a defensive coach, yet the defense is using weird tactics. They've got the most talent of any team in the league, yet constantly lose in the playoffs to bad quarterback, uh, and they can only beat seemingly backup-level quarterbacks in the postseason. I mean, <laughs> they're not, they fired the guy who's running their analytics department last season. I know because I spoke with him on the Sloan analytics panel, and they fired him this past offseason. I really don't know what direction the Steelers are headed, and it's going to be such an interesting year in 2019 because they got rid of Bell, they got rid of Antonio, supposedly the locker room doesn't have these distractions, and yet what happens if this team doesn't come out and play well? It's, it, ben Roethlisberger is going to start throwing more interceptions, there's no doubt about that, and this team's going to ultimately end up losing more games, and that that's what, what's that going to say about Kevin Colbert and Mike Tomlin? This is the weirdest time to extend a coach I've ever seen. Exactly. The most bizarre timing. Let him see what he does in 2019. He's under contract for 2020. You're not going to lose him. Let him get through this season and then make a decision. But they gave him that extra year. I'm not projecting that the Steelers are going to flop this year. I'm not suggesting that. All I'm saying is that I don't love Mike Tomlin as a tactician, as a decision maker, as a strategist. As He's very good at motivating. And he's also, except in certain games where his players, you know, just don't show up. He talks the talk, that's for sure. And he also is great in press conferences. He's a great talker. He's, he's undefeated in press conferences. Uh, you'll never find a better press conference coach speak guy than Mike Tomlin. And I know that gives a lot of quotables to the media and it deers him in their eyes. But I'm just not a massive Mike Tomlin fan. I'm not saying he's a bad coach. I'm just saying wow. his team has been very talented and uh, they have failed to meet their expectations. He's just trying to get the team out of the stadium alive, Warren. That's what Mike Tomlin's all about. Getting the team out of the stadium alive. And per Warren Sharp, the Steelers are about to implode. Watch it happen this year. Back to rapid fire. Which team's schedule improved the most improved most dramatically this season from last season? Uh, well, there's a couple of different teams that have gone in different directions in terms of improving or getting much more, you know, much more difficult. One of the teams that had their schedule, I'm going to answer the last question that you didn't ask first, uh, is... God, you and the show sheet, you're just giving it away, man. 
Yeah, this is a theater of the mind, and, and you're pulling the curtain back. <laughs> the Houston Texans were a team that went from easiest schedule in the league to the most difficult schedule in the league. And, you know, that's that's going to be very interesting for them. And that's one of the reasons why I actually like Deshaun Watson a lot is because yeah. I think they're going to be in very difficult situations from a um, offensive perspective. They're going to be trailing in some games. Uh, it's not going to be as easy for their defense. I mean, if you look at the roster of, or, or the lineup of opposing quarterbacks that this defense faced last year, you could not have picked a more laughable list of people to go up against in terms of like before the season, it looked bad during the season. It was absolutely hilarious to look through the laundry list of quarterbacks. They face. I'll rattle a few of them off to you. Ready? Rapid fire. Brock Osweiler, Blaine Gabbert, Blake Bortles, Cody Kessler, Colt McCoy, Case Keenum, Nathan Peterman, Marcus Mariota, Dak, Eli, all three rookies, Josh Allen, Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield. I mean, how do you even play that many mediocre to bad quarterbacks? I'm not saying all of those guys are bad. But I'm just saying there's a lot of backups, a lot of rookies, a lot of mediocre quarterbacks on that list. They're not going to have um, you know, the benefit of that this upcoming season. So it is going to be extremely interesting to see uh, how, they, how they produce against a difficult schedule. Guess which NFC division the AFC South crosses against this year? The NFC South, of course. Houston starts with the Saints. Then they get the Jaguars. Okay, get that out of the way. And then it's just shootout after shootout after shootout. Chargers, Panthers, Falcons, Chiefs, Colts, Raiders. Whoa! Deshaun Watson, laser light show in the sky! Yeah, I I definitely agree with you with that. I think he's a great... uh, He's the type of guy that could... Uh, potentially be that quarterback that would ultimately win you your league uh, if you're smart about the rest of your roster. Um, in terms of the uh, going the opposite direction... No, get, no you, Warren, guess who they face in Week 16 for the Fantasy Super Bowl. Just guess. Tell me. Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> you can't make this up! Do you have an explosion or a fireworks sound effect? Pew, 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 pew. That's my laser shout. All right, what, who, who schedules moving in the right direction as a team? Yeah, the right direction as a team is the Cleveland Browns. This is a team mm. that I, I project to face one of the easiest schedules, top four easiest schedules in the NFL in terms of overall strength. Um, and it's going to get the easiest on the defensive side of the football. Their defense, uh, they're going to face a, the seventh easiest schedule of opposing passing offenses. Last year, they played the third most difficult schedule of opposing offenses now their defense i've projected to face uh one, i think it's the 11th easiest schedule so a big drop there and uh their passing offense is going to get a little bit more difficult for baker um and that's going to be interesting because he had wide splits when he played good versus bad pass defenses but that's natural for any rookie especially a guy who didn't start all year as well as for any quarterback's going to have some splits like that so i'm interested to see how he does from a passing perspective but overall, there's a there's a big reason, of course, why this team, you know, didn't have a lot of success last year and is projected to win nine games uh, this upcoming season. So, you know, certainly it's one of the reasons is because they're going to be facing an easier schedule in addition to, of course, the changes and getting rid of Hugh Jackson and Baker Mayfield becoming their 16 game starter. 
Browns continuing to move in the right direction, unlike the Lions moving in the wrong direction. What the hell are the Lions doing? God, I think only a uh, aeronautical engineer would be able to figure it out. Oh, wait, they already have a guy like that, and he can't figure it out. No, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Their plan is to not have a plan. The plan was the most um, regrettable situation in terms of uh, uh, passing attack uh, that I've seen. I mean, this was one of the most pass-oriented offenses. They were efficiently capable of moving the football through the air with Matthew Stafford. Uh, Jim Bob Cooter was being creative offensively. And yet this team was an absolute disaster last year. Uh, And it was in large part because they tried to go hardcore run philosophy thanks to Matt Patricia. Uh, It made Matthew Stafford passing worse. It made the run game more up and down. Um, Matthew Stafford, you know, you would think that, okay, if we run the ball more, uh, it'll be easy for a quarterback when he does pass. Nope, it was much more difficult. uh, Play action might work better. Nope. It definitely did not. Nope. You might think, oh, well, teams will blitz the Lions less because we're, we're throwing, we're, they don't know when we're going to pass the ball. Nope, not really. His <laughs> blitz rate dropped by 2%, but he was blitz above the league average when he was passing the football because he was in more predictable situations uh, that the defense knew that he was going to be passing the football. His pass rating when he was blitzed plummeted. His yards per attempt plummeted compared to last season. So I don't have high hopes for this team. It's interesting, the a- NFC North... A lot of new coaches in that uh, division, play callers this year, getting their first chance. And certainly, uh, definitely a lot of variants that we could uncover. I'm always open to guys in their second year of coaching to see how much they're going to change. What are they going to do? What what types of philosophies are they going to modify? But I would be shocked if, you know, if, if they decided to go in a more, a you know, logical, pass-oriented approach with Matt Patricia. I think they're probably just going to say, well, we just weren't good enough last year. Let's keep at it uh, with the pencil behind the ear. And that's just not a good philosophy to utilize in 2019. The Seattle Seahawks believe that philosophy has worked for them over the years. That's why the team finished last in total pass attempts last season. It was not Detroit. It was Seattle. Any chance that Russell Wilson's attempts reverse course and jump up this year somehow, some way? Any chance? I think there is a chance. Um, my hope is that the team saw their run-oriented approach last season cause them problems in Dallas and might become a little bit more intelligent with the way that they call plays this year. I do not think they're going to go that far away from the run game, and they also play a very easy schedule of opposing run defenses this year. Oh, damn it! Factor into their you know inability or lack of desire to you'll say, hey, let's pass the ball more because the run game probably will work uh, to an extent. I mean, they got the third easiest schedule of opposing run defenses this season. That being said, uh, they might be forced to because their defense is certainly getting worse and worse by the year, and they're going to be in games that are going to require them to score more points or when they're trailing early. And if that's the case, I hope that they will decide to go and shift a little bit more to the pass earlier on in games than they did last year. Bunch of new offensive coordinators arriving on NFL sidelines. The Sean McVayification of the NFL is happening as we speak. How much power do you think these young coordinators have to affect change and reverse these antiquated offensive philosophies we're talking about? 
Well, I think it's exciting to, to, to you know, discuss and, and what's going to happen. I think it, it puts more pressure on us as analysts. Um, nearly half the NFL teams, 15 of them, have coaches in the first year calling plays for that team. I mean, that's wow. that's insane. Wow. That really is insane. Only three coordinators have been with their team more than one year. I mean, that also is absolutely ludicrous to try to think about um, what these guys are going to do. So it's going to be interesting to see the new guys what strategies they bring, how quickly they're going to adapt their choices to optimize the personnel that they have. You know, you can't, you got to come in with a framework of what you want to do, but you also have to adapt a little bit to the personnel. And so they're finding out a lot about these guys during training camp. So how much will they play to their strengths and try to limit the weaknesses of the different players that they have on their roster? How quickly will they adapt to things during the course of the season if stuff doesn't go the way that it should or in order to maximize their efficiency further? Um, and, you know, the, a lot of these guys are young. And even if we don't look at the first year guys and we look at the guys in year two, like Brian Schottenheimer, how much are these guys going to be willing to change their philosophies of, of doing self-scout, critical thinking on what they did last year and make modifications for this upcoming season um, and kind of change their stripes a little bit. You know, these aren't guys that have been with the team 10, 11 years calling plays with a lot of success, like Pete Carmichael or Josh McDaniels, for instance. These are young guys. First year didn't work out. Maybe they're willing to modify some things. Uh, now, of mm -hmm. course, Brian Schottenheimer, they won games and they went to the playoffs. So maybe slightly different in his scenario, although I certainly hope that they do use a little bit more passing and take advantage of Russell Wilson's skill sets. But that being said, I think around the league, those guys that are in year two, will they be willing to be critical of themselves and change a little bit this year to increase their efficiency? And time will tell. It's very difficult to predict right now what those guys are going to do. I think the Seattle's defense will finish in the bottom half of the league, and that will force Brian Schottenheimer to call more pass plays. The game script will override the philosophy in terms of pass volume. When you look around the league at the defenses, which team's defense do you think has improved the most through the draft and free agency that could help create more positive game script situations that help the running game and potentially suppresses pass volume? I'd have to go with the New England Patriots. Uh, they drafted Ooh. second round cornerback out of Vanderbilt. They drafted a third round a defensive end out of Michigan. Um, obviously, they made some moves in free agency, bringing in Michael Bennett. And this is a team that right now really has a good secondary. I mean, their secondary is really good. They're still playing in a division with a lot of uh, young quarterbacks. And I've got the feeling that you know, their offense may not be quite as explosive without Rob Gronkowski. They're fine with running the football, but, you know, they don't, they, they've lost a little bit of their punch, uh, so to speak. We'll have to see how Harry fits in there uh, at wide receiver. But um, I think that this team could be in games that are a little bit lower scoring. And naturally, like Bill Belichick does great jobs coaching up his defense, generally speaking, in those types of games. So, um, I mean, it's, they already were 11-5 team. They win double-digit games every year. So I don't think they're going to be flipped that much. But I think the focus, like our attention of the New England Patriots, might shift more from how electrifying this offense is to like how really sound this defense is. And the running game. They want to be a running team. So don't be surprised when Brady finishes well outside the top 10 in pass attempts and 
he's outside the top 20 in fantasy points per game because he doesn't offer that mobility, that rushing upside for fantasy football. I'll get you out of here on this, Warren. I need the boldest prediction you got for this coming season. You're not going to like this because I already Uh-oh. spilled the beans earlier on. But Oh, no. Miles Sanders can win people leagues, uh, especially late in the season. He's going to run through a rough stretch uh, through the middle of the season where some people, due to maybe a little bit of committee approach at that point in time, might be down on uh, the run game. Uh, they're playing a bunch of very difficult run defenses during the middle of the season. But stash him if you need to. Be ready to come back to him because down the stretch, he's got a very easy run schedule, and I really think he could be the type of running back who could literally win people leagues. You don't have to draft him high, and he could be a very great producer down the stretch when you'll need him in the to make the playoffs and then in the playoffs. Miles Sanders, league winner. I truthfully don't really understand the question. I mean, which team has an STD and you should never draft anyone on that team? Like gonorrhea.